Okay, uh, here's how we're going to start. We're going to start the way we always start. We're going to start with our young ones, with our kids. Let y'all know what the passage this morning is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. Okay, so kids, if I can have your attention, I want to tell you a story. This is a true story. True story, okay? A long time ago, there was a man named Arthur Schopenhauer, and he was a philosopher. Like, he liked to tell stories and, and all, uh, all kinds of stuff. And he tells a story of the animals of the forest— struggling to survive one of the coldest, most freezing winters ever. This winter is so cold that all the animals decide to huddle up together for warmth, to get underground together, find a cave together, and they're all going to get together and be together for warmth. So you've got uh, foxes getting cozy with rabbits, and you've got owls snuggling up with uh, little squirrels. And you've got bear and wolves and deer all snuggled up, nestled in together. And everyone's good, except the porcupines. Porcupines have a big, big problem because their spines are all pokey and stabbing everybody else. And no one wants to huddle up with the porcupines. The porcupines don't want to huddle up with the porcupines. And so the porcupines decide to just go out on their own into the wintry uh, snow by themselves. And some of them don't make it. It's so sad. But the smart ones, the wise ones who are dying, they're like, we've got to get back to the caves. We've got to get back to the burrows. And they go. And what happens? They poke and they stab each other. And they know they're not going back outside, and so they huddle even closer together. More stabby, more pokey. And they realize it doesn't matter. We need each other, or we are going to die. And they make it through the winter. Okay, this is a true story. Uh, and, this is, and this is what it has to do with us t- uh, this morning. Uh, okay, like this life, this world, it is like one big, long winter super cold out there. And, and if you try to live this life alone, you even try to live this Christian life alone, you are going to freeze and you are going to die. You are not going to make it. You need others. You need, we desperately need each other. We need the church. Now, here's the thing about the church. Everyone in the church is a porcupine. There are no fuzzy rabbits No cuddly deer in the church. Never have been, never will be. Everybody in the church is a porcupine. And so what happens when we get together? We get all stabby and pokey with each other. And we do. And what do we know? We know, just like the porcupines, we know, doesn't matter. We've got to get even closer together. And so even as we get closer and closer to each other in the church, as in like you start to talk to other people in the church, you start to ask other people in the church like, hey, how are you doing? Hey, can I help you? Yes, can you help me? Hey, what do you need? I can do that for you. Yes, do this for me and I'll do this for you. And we get together and we get to know each other more and you're gonna find out, oh, I don't like what you like. Oh, really? You think that about that? That's weird. Like, doesn't matter. Pokey stabby, we still need each other. And, and this is what the church is. We are going to survive together. Now, I want to ask you this. Last question. Who is the biggest porcupine in the church? Who is the most stabby pokey in the church? So you, you, some of y'all are pointing at me. <laughs> some of y'all are pointing at, uh, yeah, some of y'all are pointing at your brothers. Uh, okay, no, 
You know, who is the biggest porcupine, most stabby, most pokey in the church? It's Jesus. Dad, yeah, and your dad too. It's, it's, it's Jesus. And why is, okay, why is Jesus the most pokey, stabby? Like, what's some of the hard stuff Jesus says to us? That like, ooh, that poked me. Ooh, that feels like stabbing. What's some of the hard stuff Jesus says? How about he says, hey, don't lie. Oh, but I really like to lie. Uh, he says, hey, be patient. No, 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 I really like to get angry. Uh, wh- what else does he say that's hard? Yes, go for it. Obey your parents. Nope, but I know better than my parents. What a, very good. What else does he say that's like hard? Go for it, Vivian. Love your neighbor. And then what's really, like, my neighbor, well, who's my neighbor? What's, su- like, not only love your neighbor, love your, your family, which can be even harder than loving your enemies sometimes. <laughs> love your enemies, love your family. All so hard. All feels like stabby pokey stuff that Jesus tells us. And we're still going to huddle around Jesus. We're still going to come together. We're still going to be a church. You know what else Jesus says? He says he loves you. He says he loves you so much. He lived for you and he died for you to save you from that wintry death. And all you need is him and all we need is each other. And as we gather around him, we gather around each other. Sure, it'll feel pokey stabby stuff, but that's salvation and this is what we need. And we're only going to get closer and closer together as a church. That's what this passage is about this morning. The church being a bunch of porcupines uh, huddling around Jesus to live forever and ever. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 14. Paul is dealing with all these divisions in the church in Corinth. They've got all kinds of problems. And he, this super applicable letter is just kind of going one by one. Starting a few weeks ago, he's really started to focus on their worship, how they're worshiping together. And so we're kind of coming to the end of that uh, in chapter 14 here. Uh, so with that, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to take certain... Selections. This is kind of part two of what we did last Sunday, but, but if, if you weren't able to be here for that, you're, you're okay. But this is, uh, this is picking up from where we left off. You notice we're going to start kind of where he starts his whole passage about this, what we're talking about today in chapter 12, and then some selections from chapter 14. Please follow along. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, so we're talking spiritual gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, 
By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are, are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law so says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. But all things should be done decently and in order. The word of the Lord. Uh, please be seated. Yes, we're going to deal with everything fun and hard in that passage. Uh, okay, so... I heard this from a U2 fan. Uh, whether you are a lover of all things U2 or you're not, you will love this. In 1988, uh, they put out a live album, Rattle and Rum, and uh, Rattle and Hum. Uh, and frontman, frontman Bono is setting up this song, Helter Skelter, which is a cover of the Beatles song, Helter Skelter, from the 60s. Uh, and, and you gotta know the backdrop of after that song uh, was put out, uh, it came out in the 60s. There was a serial killer by the name of Charles Manson, and he took the lyrics of that song, the song of Helter Skelter, and he would have his cult, his cult followers, write the lyrics of that song in blood o over their victims. Uh, so this song, Helter Skelter, became inextricably linked with these horrific murders and this monster, Charles Manson. Sobano, Sobano, uh, right before th they're going to play Helter, Helter Skelter, he says to the crowd, this is a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Okay, and then they launch into it. Okay, I want to tell you up front that that's where we're headed this morning, that there is this monstrous evil that has stolen and corrupted this thing called love, and we're stealing it back. That's where we're going but let's start with the elephant in the room. Tongues. Uh, there's a couple elephants in the room here. This one is, let's start with the first one. Tongues. Uh, in the Bible, in the Bible, the word tongue always, always means either, always, always, either, either literally the tongue, the fleshy muscle in your mouth thing, or metaphor, metaphorically, it means languages, the thing you speak with your tongue. Always, always, that's what it means. 
uh, spoken, understood, intelligible languages. And same in the Old Testament. Same thing in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for tongue always means languages. In Acts chapter 2, this day of Pentecost, this is one of the big three festivals when the Jews and Gentile Jewish converts, they come from all over the ancient Near East and they come to Jerusalem. And the apostles on this occasion in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has lived, he's died, he's been resurrected, the apostles are there on this big feast. They start speaking, it says, in tongues. It's very clear that what that means is they are speaking in all the different languages of these foreigners that have come to Jerusalem for this feast. It says that the Holy Spirit shows up visibly looking like fire in the shape of tongues over the apostles. It says divided tongues of fire appeared to the apostles and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And both the Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The book of Revelation tells us right now in heaven, every, right, like right, right now, like we're not alone, right now there's a worship service going on in heaven praising Jesus for having saved sinners, this says from Revelation, from every tribe and people and nation and tongue. That is language. In 1 Corinthians Right here, there's no new definition because tongues means the same thing here that it means everywhere else in the Bible. Languages. Okay, now, the Corinthians' problem here is that they have elevated tongues, this gift of speaking different languages, to supreme status among the spiritual gifts. And you got it, that begs the question, why? Why would elevating the gift of tongues be such a problem in Corinth. Remember where Corinth is. Remember the city of Corinth is right there on the Mediterranean. It, it's, it's a city surrounded by ports. It connects north and southern Greece. It connects the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. It is the hub. It is a major tra trade route, uh, lots of economic opportunity, attracts people from all over the world, melting pot of melting pots. That's Corinth cultures, languages. So what was tongues? Tongues was the supernatural gift given by the Spirit to speak in a language that they did not know previously. And they are given this gift in order to help others understand the gospel. So you got to imagine, someone comes into Corinth, and they come into the church, they don't, know, they don't know Greek. They don't know Koine Greek uh, very well. Someone with this gift of languages would be able to speak to them in their own native language and teach them the gospel inspired by the Spirit. And this is such a big deal because at this point in the church, they don't have the New Testament. When, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the New Testament is, is just starting to be written. At this point, they've got the book of James, they've got Galatians, they've got First and Second Thessalonians. Mark has just written his gospel, gospel of Mark, uh, and they're starting to be circulated. But people, they don't have the New Testament, and people with the gift of tongues uh, are, are helping now, now, here's the really important thing here. The people with the gift of tongues did not just suddenly wake up one day with this gift of languages. These gifts are bestowed on them in Corinth. They've been bestowed on them by Paul, the apostle. So we read about the apostles were allowed to confer 
these spiritual gifts on those that they worked with. We read this in the beginning of the establishing of the church. We read this in Acts chapter 6. They established the diaconate, and these guys are able to work miracles. We read this in Acts chapter 8. We could go on. It's a great, great passage. But just to say, the apostles would lay their hands on certain people, certain men and certain women, and give them supernatural spiritual gifts like this and like healing in order to bring about the teaching, uh, to, bring the te- uh, to bring the teaching of the apostolic message. And that's really important. Not their own message, but so that they could teach the apostolic message of the New Testament to the people. The message that they have received from the apostles. And what this is, as, they confer, as the apostles confer these gifts on the people to go speak and teach the gospel that they have taught them, this is a sign affirming the apostles' authority and the apostles' teaching. And this arrangement, it is a temporary arrangement until the New Testament is written. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says about the new covenant message, the New Testament. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You even see this transition of fading out from these supernatural gifts uh, to the ordinary gifts. You see this transition even before the apostles actually die. As Paul writes his final epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, he never talks about these gifts. He never talks about the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, the gift of healing. He never talks about any of that because that stuff is now done. He says simply to Timothy, to these guys, preach the word. Preach the word that has now been entrusted to the church. Because once the apostles had committed their new covenant gospel, this New Testament to writing, and they died, those revelatory gifts, these special gifts, they become obsolete. We would say they cease to function in the church. Okay? But right here in Corinth right now, this gift was functioning powerfully. And there's this other gift too that Paul talks about, this gift of interpretation. Okay? So if you've got the gift of languages and and you're going off on this amazing spirit-inspired teaching of the gospel, Someone else there with the supernatural gift of interpretation could interpret what you're teaching in that foreign language so that everyone else in the service can also, can also benefit from this spirit-inspired preaching, praying. Uh, here's the problem in Corinth. The spiritual gift of speaking in other languages, it became the thing. Like, it's the thing. It's the easiest and it's the most immediate way of showing off how spiritual you are. Literally how gifted you are. And yeah, prophecy was kind of cool too. Uh, If and when we could verify with other prophets and apostles that what you're saying is what the apostles said. Sure, prophecy is cool, but, you know, with tongues, there's that immediate impact. Oh my goodness, he's speaking in Arabian. Like that's, oh my gosh, Coptic? That's crazy. Like, that's right there, immediate impact, immediate results, crazy spectacular. So people, so people with that gift are putting it on display even when there's no need of it. Uh, Even if there's no one on that Sunday needing a gospel in that specific language. So, I got the supernatural spirit 
God-given gift of speaking a language I've never known before, Coptic. And the last two Sundays of the service, I've just been going off in Coptic, showing it off, even though there are no Egyptians there. And even though there's no one there to interpret what I am saying, uh, I'm going to use it. Uh, Even though the congregation can't understand it, can't interpret it for me, I love doing it. Uh, People get a kick out of it when I do it. It shows everybody that I'm for reals, and God understands it. So, there. And that's what Paul is speaking into. Paul, Paul has to set them straight. And he says, listen, for one who speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but speaks to God. Yeah, sure, okay, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. No, no, right there. The mysteries in the Spirit. Let's just, one second. The mysteries there, that does not mean some angelic language. That does not. It means mysteries in the Spirit means right there what it means everywhere else in the New Testament. Mysteries refers to the gospel that has now been revealed. The mystery is this thing that was secret that has now been revealed. This, this revealing of the coming of Jesus Christ, the mystery of his life, his death, his resurrection, and how it saves all of us. How Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And Paul says, if you're preaching or you're praying in a foreign, in a foreign language unnecessarily, okay, yeah, sure, God understands. But no one else understands. And that defeats the whole purpose. Prophecy, on the other hand, builds up the church because everyone in the church can understand what you're talking about. But when you exercise the gift of tongues like this, you're not serving anyone except yourself, which is a total perversion of the gift. And then in verse 21, Paul explains like the real reason for the gift of tongues. And he quotes this prophecy from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Verse 21, he says this, In the law it is written, and this is in Isaiah, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is God. This is from the Old Testament. This is God speaking to Israel. And and God is giving them this prophecy. And he's saying to Israel, Listen, Israel, if you keep rebelling, if you keep turning away from me to serve other gods, to serve these false idols— I'm going to take my kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to the Gentiles. And this is how you'll know that that's happened. This is how you'll know that day has come. You will begin to hear the message of the kingdom. You will begin to hear the word of God in Gentile languages. In the Old Testament, the language of God was Hebrew because that was the language of his people. So he condescends to his people and he uses Hebrew because that's what his people spoke. Uh, So the the Old Testament word, the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But the fulfillment of that prophecy that has come with Israel ultimately breaking, ultimately denying their covenant with God in murdering the Messiah, their true king, Jesus. And the crazy sign of the fulfillment of that prophecy is now a Jew— will walk into a church at this time in Corinth and they will hear the message of God not in Hebrew but in a foreign language and not just one foreign language all the Gentile foreign languages and this is what Paul means in that next verse in verse 22 he says thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers because it is a wake up warning to the unbelieving Jews 
And then Paul going to bring it all back, he brings it all back on the church. If the, but if those Jews, they come into the service and they, all they hear are these weird languages, but they don't hear the message and it's not interpreted for them. And, no, and, and he looks around and says that no one is really understanding the message. How in the world are they going to repent? How in the world are they going to come to faith? Like how in the world are they going to believe? They're going to walk away saying, you guys are nuts. You guys are we like weird cult. No, thank you. But if they hear the gospel and they hear that God is among the Gentiles, they can be convicted of their sin. They can be convicted of their need and they can be convicted of this salvation. So ironically and sadly, the spiritual gifts are being abused and they end up accomplishing right now, they're accomplishing the opposite desired end. And they end up causing disorder and confusion. So, Ghostros, um, in uh, the 2014 season opener in April, uh, the Cubs, with the Cubs, uh, there was a home game uh, against the Phillies. Three of my friends were there, and they're sitting behind that ivy wall. They just told me this story uh, two days ago. They're sitting behind that ivy wall. It was a super, super cold evening, uh, and they're having, they're having a great, great time. Gets to the seventh inning. Seventh inning stretch. Big, big deal at Cub Stadium. They've got some uh, nice ballpark hot chocolate ready. One of them has a uh, sli big slice of pizza steaming fresh. It's so cold. They're so ready for seventh inning stretch. And then they notice that there's something going on in front of them a couple rows down. Uh, it's a group who's huddled all together, but it's not like they're trying to keep warm with one another, but they're like hugging each other and they're crying and they're emptying a box and out of this box flies ashes. And they realize that they are releasing the ashes of a recently deceased loved one. Now, it is a long-time Cubs tradition uh, to, uh, you come to the stadium, you get to the seventh inning stretch, and you sing, take me out to the ball game. Big, big thing uh, with the Cubs uh, during the seventh inning stretch. Yeah, that gets disrupted when these ashes fly into the faces of my friends. Uh, and uh, all over that fresh new slice of pizza, <laughs> looks down and says, it looked like someone poured pepper all over uh, his pizza. Uh, and uh, it's, it, you've got two, here you've got, you've got two groups of people supposed to be enjoying the same event uh, the same way. They're all Cub fans. They're all Cub fans. They know what seventh inning is all about. They know what opening day is all about, except you've got one group having a memorial service and another group wearing the memorial service. And my friends didn't say anything uh, because this, this group of people, as they're <laughs> emptying out the ashes, like holding up their hands, like waving goodbye and crying all each other. And, you know, my friends are just covered <laughs> in this ash. Uh, that was a big, that was a big disruption. Okay, that's basically what's going on in Corinth, the church, the church where uh, church is happening, where everyone, everyone at the worship service is supposed to be sharing the same worship experience. But it ends up that there are two totally different experiences, and one being ruined unknowingly by, by the other. The other one unknowingly ruining it for everyone else. The worship service in Corinth was just this giant mess. And you read verses 5 and 9 and 11 and 13. The problem is actually not only, it's not only using tongues unnecessarily, but even when they are needed, 
needed by someone else. Uh, there's no one there uh, exercising the gift of interpretation, and some of them have the gift of interpretation. They're just not doing anything about it. So, so there's someone there. They, they need the foreign language. They need the gospel in the foreign language, and that's happening, and no one's stepping up and doing their job and interpreting it so that this spirit-inspired prayer or, or preaching can be enjoyed by all, can be shared by all. And the self-centeredness is on full display when every, everyone, everyone with one of these gifts wants to speak. Multiple prophets, multiple tongues, and on and on, and in no order. Verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, each one has a lesson, each one has a revelation, oh, each one has a tongue, each one has an interpretation. It's like, hey, we're going to have two pastors here, and I'm going to preach, and then after I'm done, the next pastor's going to go, he's got something to say too. And if we have three, that we're each going to need a turn in the same Sunday morning. You wouldn't be back. Okay? And Paul is saying, the worship, your worship services, they are too long, and they are too disordered. Stop it. An important note here. Here, here it is. Okay, ready? Verse 34. That seems like a sweeping prohibition of uh, women. You do not talk in the church. This is not what he's saying. We know that's not what he's saying here. And it can't be because a few chapters earlier, just a few chapters earlier in this same context, same passage, Paul is talking about women prophesying and praying in the church. So, okay, so this is in the con when he says this. This is in the context of what Paul says in the previous verses. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Okay, that is, in this service, there are different prophets prophesying. Uh, and they are, with these different prophets, they are engaging in authoritative judging and evaluating each other's messages. Because there could be false prophets creeping into the church which is all over the New Testament, of people trying to either for money or for power, prestige. They, false prophets are out there. They are judging each other's prophecies to make sure, yeah, that's what Paul said. Yes, that's in line with what Paul is teaching. So the prophets are judging each other's prophecies. What Paul is prohibiting here, he's prohibiting giving time in, worship, in the worship service that is already so disordered and so busy. He's, he's prohibiting giving time in the worship service to the wives of prophets. He says, I do not permit women to speak. He's talking about the wives of the prophets who are, who are not prophets themselves from joining in the evaluation. Like, because think about it. Who is better to judge a prophet's teaching than the prophet's wife? Like, there's no one better. Like, <laughs> honey, you know, really dear. Uh, no, so, like, who better to judge? Except Paul knows, Paul knows that this has got major uh, potential for nepotism, you know, written all over it. Because there are a few scenarios that could happen. There are a bunch, but here's just a few. Here's what you're, you're either going to get a prophet and his wife getting all lovey-dovey together, like having their own, like, little worship service in the middle of the worship service, like the wife telling the prophet just how brilliant he is, and oh my gosh, it's so good, and tell him the other thing you were telling me the other day, and yes, and like how this, like, and just go off. Like, and that would be a major disruption. Or the other, the, you know, the flip side of that coin, you're going to get some conflict. You're going to get some arguing. You're going to get some disagreeing between the prophet and his wife, and they're going to go at it. Major disruption in the middle of the service. Or, or you're going to get that, you're going to get some long-winded, self-indulgent, just back and forth. 
okay, well, what about this? Okay, then great. Well, what about this? Well, that's a good question. So it's by that. Oh, and then what about this? And like, and that will be a major disruption. And so he says, listen, like, like go, like do that at home. Like do that at home till you're like, you're married to like, great. Y'all can go do that at home until your heart's content. Fantastic. Just don't do that in the middle of the worship service. This is gonna, this is gonna be this huge disruption. And he's not, like, he is not just telling this to the wives of the prophets to restrain themselves. Before that, in verses 27 to 30, he says the exact same thing to prophets. He says, listen, there are too many of you. So one or two of you talk, and the other you, like, be, like, shut it. Like, be quiet. Stop. Like, be silent. Restrain yourself. He says the same thing to people speaking in tongues. He says the same thing to interpreters. Guys, girls, limit it to like two, three, revelations, tops. Take turns and be done. That's what he's saying. So, like the so what for us. So, in all of our gatherings, like we too want to be as clear, and we want to be as orderly, and we want to be as welcoming as we can be when we gather for worship when we gather for Bible studies, when we gather for fellowship, when we gather for whatever it might be, we want to be clear, orderly, we want to be welcoming. But the solution to that is not to become so, so strict and rigid, where it is just, you know, by the book, don't get out of line, don't get out of order. Not a peep, you know, from the congregation. Like, no, uh, because what that ends up doing, like you put all, all of, you know, all you do is highlight the gifts of just a few, this is what you end up doing is you neglect and you deny the gifts of all the people in the church family. And so what we want to do is we want to exercise our spiritual gifts in the service and in the week with each other. Now there are, there are five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There's one in Romans 12. There's one in Ephesians 4. There's one in 1 Peter 4. There's two in 1 Corinthians 12, two chapters earlier. And all these lists they're all pretty different. None of them are exhaustive. They are illustrative. Uh, as in, there are some gifts that communicate truth, like evangelism, preaching, teaching. There are some gifts uh, that are the ability to bear burdens for others, like encouragement, mercy, service, helps, assistance. There's some, uh, there are some gifts that are all about giving direction, like leadership and administration and wisdom, which is, which is really a counseling gift of a way to give individual one-on-one instruction and encouragement and direction. So here's the question. How do you find your gift? How do you find your gift? Just start here. How about this? Uh, look at your abilities. What can you do? Okay. Here's another one. Look at your affinities. What do you like to do? Here's another one. Look at your opportunities. As in, where can you do? And when can you do? And then look at, the needs, look, look at the needs of the church. Look at the needs of those around you. And let's not make it any more complicated than that. And you come to me, and you go to each other, and we'll figure it out together. As in, sometimes it's just jump in and serve. And if you've been here long enough, if you keep coming here long enough, uh, you're going to get to the point where you're going to start, you're going to, start to ask yourself, what am I going to do with these people? What am I going to, and, and not like, you're not going to ask that question about the people who are just like you. You're going to ask that question about the people who are not like you here. And then like, what am I going to do with those people? 
And this, gets, this is going to get really pushed on you when the social norms, they just no longer hold. You know our, you know our social norms. Of, I'm just going to be nice to everybody. I'm just going to be polite to everybody. That doesn't last if you keep coming. Because what's going to happen is you're going to bump into someone who actually needs, who needs you. Especially when it is not on your terms and it is not on your schedule. What are you going to do with these people? Uh, do y'all know why? Um, do y'all know why I I I truly I, I mean love is one, like do you know why I love everyone here at Cornerstone? Do y'all know why? Do you know why each and every one of you is my favorite? Each and every one of you is my favorite. Do you know how it is that all of you are my friends? It's not because we all love Tolkien. It's not because we're all scared of sharks. Uh, it's because. It's because I've gotten to serve you. It's because I've gotten to serve you, and in getting to serve you and getting to know you, I have realized how awesome each and every one of you are. You are all so awesome, and I love you. It's because I got to serve you. Uh, we've got to serve each other, and as we serve each other, we're going to love each other. This is why Paul goes on in this big tangent in chapter 13 on love. You know, it seems like he starts talking about spiritual gifts in 12, 14. You look at 13. It's this love thing that everyone uses at their weddings. It's fine, but this is not what he's talking about, his weddings. He's talking about the church, like loving everybody in the church. Because he, he, he says that love will get it done. He says right at the end of that, he says, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Have you ever thought about, like, why is that? Why is love greater than hope and, like, faith? Those are great. Love lasts forever. Guess, guess what does not last forever? Y'all, guess what, guess what is not in heaven? Faith and hope. Those things are not in heaven. You will not need faith in heaven because you will walk by sight. As in, you will literally see Jesus and you will see his kingdom and you will get to glorify in it by sight, all the time experiencing it, knowing it for sure. You won't need faith in heaven. Guess what else you won't need in heaven? Hope. Because every moment in heaven is absolutely glorious and fulfilling. Every single moment. There's nothing to look forward to. It is truly living in the present forever. But love. We will continue to love each other in heaven. Love will always, always be there. We need faith and we need hope right now. We definitely need faith and hope. And we need love forever. So we just had... Um, like, well, so what is love? Uh, we just had uh, one of our neighbors tell us that uh, their little girl is going to be Elsa from Frozen. Uh, uh, today, Halloween, and Frozen is, as one of my friends has pointed out, it is truly the anti-Disney Disney movie. Uh, just remember, if you haven't seen it, this is your fault. Remember, Princess Anna's heart has been accidentally frozen uh, by her sister Elsa, and we are told at the beginning of the movie that uh, when this happens, only an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart. And because of culture, and truly the culture created by Disney, everyone is expecting that act of love is what? True love's first kiss. 
So we're, we're set up. We're set up to expect. We're waiting for uh, Anna to fall in love. And so the whole movie, like we're moving toward the, the, the climactic moment uh, as Anna is becoming more and more frozen. We need her to fall in love and be set free by true love's first kiss. And at the end, Anna is dying. She is dying and uh, she is freezing. She's almost done. She's running to Kristoff, the man who loves her and, and the man that she loves and the man that, who, who can save her with true love's first kiss. But right before she reaches him, she turns to see the villain Hans about to strike down her sister, Elsa. And so she has, she has a choice. Anna can run to Kristoff, the man who can save her, and she lives and her sister dies. Or Anna can run to her sister, Elsa, and save her. And Elsa lives and Anna dies. The last moment, Anna thrusts herself between Hans and Elsa, and she takes the sword blow as she becomes completely frozen. Anna chooses to die and save her sister. And I asked my daughter Maisie once when she was like four years old. I said, Maisie, why does Anna do that if she's going to die? And Maisie thought about it and she said, because she loves her sister. And then we remember an act of true love thaws a frozen heart. And Anna thaws from the inside out, and the curse is broken. And this is one of the reasons, there's so many reasons Frozen is so good. This is one of the reasons that Frozen is so beloved and is the anti-Disney Disney movie because it gets what true love really, really is. It is not warm fuzzies. True love is someone willing to give up their life for someone else. The church comes up with a million, million strategies of how to make Jesus attractive like to the church and to the world with all kinds of programs and all kinds of now all kinds of compromises but right after Jesus predicts that one of his disciples is going to betray him Jesus says this to his disciples by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another like the motivation to serve each other loved ones is not pride it is not, look how gifted I am at serving the church. The motivation is not shame, and it is not guilt. It is not fear. It is not, hey, do more. Why aren't you doing more? Like, why aren't you doing more here? Like, don't you want to get involved? Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love others? The motive is love because love awakens love. And when Jesus was in most need of service— most need of help, when Jesus was in most need of support, he had told his family, he had told his friends what is coming for him. He told them that death is coming. He told them a cross is coming. He told them ultimate suffering is coming. And when it comes, he looks around and he is all alone. And what does he do? He continues to serve those who not only don't deserve his service, but who refuse to serve him in his greatest hour of need when he most needs attention, when he most needs to be embraced, when he most needs to hear that he is loved, when he most needs to be prayed for, when he most needs to be strengthened, he looks up and he doesn't see friends. He sees a cross. He sees death. He sees wrath. And he walks into it. And he goes and he suffers and he dies and he takes it all alone to save you and to save me. And why does he do it? Because he loves us. 
that love, that'll awaken our love for one another so that we truly can serve each other and serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for passages like this that are so big and uh, uh, can be so difficult, uh, but we thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for the gift of your spirit and we thank you for the gift of the church that has labored over this word so faithfully in order to understand the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed in Jesus Christ and his love for us. So we pray that we would not seek to stand over this word, but that we would seek to, seek to stand under it, not to master your word, to be, to be mastered by it, and Lord, truly to be changed by it in order that we would know your love, in order to love you and to love one another and to show that love and service. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.